gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 11, the review segment for Friday, February 21st, 2014. It's just me and Patches this morning. We're bringing an NPR vibe to this <laughs> review of Pompeii because it uh, it needs some counterbalancing, I'd say. Exactly. We need, uh, to, we need to calm this this puppy down. In, uh, in Patch's ongoing quest to be the master of crap directors on the internet, he's been researching Paul W.S. Anderson lately. Um, researching? And I, like, I talked to the man for well, like and also, also hours. Research. I feel like more relevant for this is your research. I don't, I don't want to accuse you of just liking his movies because you talked to him. Okay, fair enough. You're better than that. Um, but I don't know if this... I, I have a feeling this made you go into Pompeii with more more prone to like it and i went in prone to like it too and then it turned out you were a bigger fan of this movie than i was which made me sad because i was really looking forward to it well why do you think pompeii is like i mean you didn't say it was great but why do you like it so much i don't know if i think that i like pompeii more because i've been (laughs) analyzing paul w sanderson's films i think i can step back and say that uh resident evil afterlife is a pretty shite movie um Although I have a newfound respect for Resident Evil Retribution after watching it. That is an art, oh, yeah? that's an art film. That should be playing in museums. And that's the newest one, right? It's basically River of Fundament, but with oh. Mila Jovovich and I can't uh, believe zombies. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, that's a movie I can't get off my mind. Pompeii is a movie that <laughs> is fleeting, but very enjoyable. Um, just to set the, the scene here, um, Kit Harington plays this guy named Milo, who is a slave... I believe from Britannia. Yeah, he's a Celt. He, um, and which actually, just to give you a little information on Paul Thomas Anderson, really hits home because he lived near the wall in England. Uh, I'm trying to look this up now. <laughs> like the Roman wall in England? Yes. So he oh. comes from a very, um, you know, this is this is part of his history. You're going to say his family was also slaughtered by Romans. Probably, actually. Uh, yeah, he, he lived near the wall. And, and so Kit Harrington is brought from Britannia to the city of Pompeii as a slave, turned into a gladiator, and he's just going to fight for the amusement of the people. Um, and I believe that uh, Kiefer Sutherland plays this guy, Senator Corvus, who wants to... Wait, no, that's not his... He has a whole full name that everyone has to say over and over again. Well, say, it, say it like, but like Kiefer Sutherland would say it. Um, I got to look it up first. Okay, I, fair I'm enough. Not I'll, I'll, I'll continue the tone there, the, the scene setting here. So anyway, um, uh, Kiefer Sutherland's Politico from, uh, he's from, is he from Athens? He's from... He's from Rome. Come okay. on. Oh, yeah. That's, come on. That makes a lot of sense. He's from Rome, and he wants to come revamp Pompeii, maybe, do some political string pulling. Um, and his uh, confidant in Pompeii is Jared Harris, who plays Lucridius. And he's the guy who's going to put on this big show for um, Kiefer Sutherland when he comes to town. So that's why Kit Harrington is going to be like, they need a great slave. And Kit Harrington is basically like Russell Crowe in the movie Gladiator. He's an invincible gladiator. He beats everybody. Um, but he does, uh, his, his greatest challenge will be 
uh, oh my God, the names in this movie, Bridgagayas uh, Adewale uh, from, who also has like the toughest well, last name I in the world. I swore his name is Atticus in the movie. I see what you're looking really? at. Really? Yeah, okay. I would have sworn him. Atticus Let's call him way Atticus. easier to say. No one's going to remember the names of this movie. Let's call no. Adewale's character Atticus Adewale from Lost and G.I. Joe. Um, one he, of Thor's. Just this big, oh yeah, he was in Thor the Dark World. Um, he is a big hulking man who's going to kick Kit Harrington's ass in the arena and you almost believe they could they're both extremely good fighters and there's some cool training scenes where they kind of spar and, and get ready for battle um but obviously they end up befriending each other and you know this whole gladiator it's it's really interesting the way that this movie meshes kind of the uh, it, it is a gladiator fight movie for about half of it and it's about the politics of the city and the inner workings and um, much like the Pulpum films of the 60s. You know, I've been also watching a lot of um, Pulpum or these sword and sandal films that were the predecessors to spaghetti westerns back in the late 50s and 60s in Italy, kind of um, riffing on big American epics from earlier in the 20th century. Um, and these films are bad. I mean, they're, they're sword and sandal epics, quote unquote, um, and they have scale to them, but they're light and silly and the dialogue sounds like faux Shakespeare, so you may, it feels a little more important. Um, and this film pl- operates in that exact same fashion. I'm not saying that uh, Paul W. Sanderson is today's Mario Bava, but almost, maybe. Uh, or C- God, Sergio Leone, uh, who was also doing pulpum fills back in the day. Um, but it's it's pretending to be important, and I think it sells that through silly dialogue and Decent performances from Kit Harrington and Emily Browning, who All plays right. his kind of uh, love interest. And wait, I just want to say that what I find fascinating about this movie is, you know, obviously the volcano is kind of lingering in the background of all these shots. We know what's going to happen. But the sword and sandal gladiator portion of this movie is just as entertaining to me. I think the fight scenes are pretty cool. Um, I love all the pr- production design of, of Pompeii itself. And Kiefer Sutherland is a hoot as uh, whatever his name is, as you'll be telling us in a second. I can't find it. Oh. The entire internet just listened to Senator Corvus, Take and there's notes. so much more. I know. There's the so much more to his Senator name. Something Corvus. Who, whoever knows, uh, please call us so and good. recite it, because uh, I oh, really yes. someone say it out loud Call again. us on the phone and then actually leave your impression of Keith or something in this movie. <laughs> um, but, like, I love the dynamic. It's very silly. And then when the volcano erupts, this movie turns into a period Roland Emmerich film, and I kind of dig that, too. Oh, I dig the Roland Emmerich stuff perfectly like that. Once that got going, I was psyched. Um, let's just go. Let's just backtrack a minute. You say that the mountain is in the background of every <laughs> shot. The mountain is, in fact, it's not quite the first shot, but it's almost the first shot. It should be. The movie is called Pompeii. Here's the thing about Mount Vesuvius. Before the mountain exploded, it came to a point. It looked like the Alps. Like it was just this like little triangular typical mountain. And then when the volcano erupted, it started to look like a volcano, which is why nobody knew it was a volcano. And it drives me crazy that mm. like all, I mean they're obviously they're not interested in historical details. They cause a tsunami. Well, wrong. They definitely are. Paul well, Anderson is obsessed with history and verisimilitude in his even well, no matter how goofy things are. And yeah, I think this is pretty accurate actually. There, I mean, there's no record of there having been a tsunami in Pompeii. Yes, there is. What? Yes, that there. I don't. All right, fine. Well, that is not what the mountain looked like, and that drove me nuts. Um, also, I have there's the, there's the big scene in the Colosseum where. They have like an earthquake hits and then there are these rocks flying and, you know, building destruction and much of the Coliseum stands. But right now, almost all of that Coliseum is there. You can go stand inside it. You, like, it's like, perfectly round. And they let one of the walls collapse. Answer me that, Paul W.S. Anderson. 
<laughs> wait, wait, wait. One of the walls collapsed of the volcano. Of the Colosseum. Oh, like, the you can Coliseum. see this, like, you know, like, most of it's still there, but one of the sidewalls has collapsed. Well, not- <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be 100% accurate. Wait, I also take... It, the So, Mount Vesuvius looked like a mountain the first time it erupted? Are we sure, also, that this was the first eruption? Because I know Mount Vesuvius has erupted I don't Multiple know if it was the first since. eruption, but I know that it did not look like a volcano. I know that the people around who were living at it didn't know that it was, didn't have any sense that it was a volcano, and it looked like a mountain. Can we just talk about how people still live near Mount Vesuvius? I mean, people live near all kinds of volcanoes. Mount, Mount Vesuvius, the last time it erupted was in 1944. That is not that long ago. That's interesting. I didn't realize 1906, that. 1906, 1929, and 1944, it erupted. And it's obviously going to erupt again. What's but wrong didn't, with people? like, wipe people out last no, time. No, they, they were small eruptions. But come on, I mean... I mean, people live in Los Angeles. There's giant fault lines everywhere. Who knows? Haven't they seen the movie Volcano? That's going to probably happen to them. <laughs> also, to them. Um, as you mentioned, at, when, during the eruption sequences of this film, there is a tsunami. It's teased in the trailer. And I just want to say it's that kind of amazing. Paul W. Sanderson told me that um, Pliny the Younger wrote about the Bay of Naples draining and water going out. And obviously, maybe maybe that's... An extrapolation, right. perhaps, but there is documented evidence that the Bay of Naples kind of like that, that makes sense. But do you think that a ship the then blocked? No, the I don't. <laughs> I don't think that ships were like sailing at people, and there had to be a car chase, but with horses like <laughs> running away. It, I mean, obviously, this is bigger and crazier, but I like I'm appreciating that on some level. I no. like that this is. Um, a goofy B-movie. I, I don't know. I saw this. I had a really good experience seeing this, too. I, I went up to a theater and um, saw it with general public. I think I was the only press person there. And people were just going wild. We were having a, a great time, like laughing at all the corny lines and all the, like, intrigue that wasn't really intrigue at all, just kind of, like, pushing the plot forward. And Kit Harrington's a badass. I mean, I, like, I, I thought he was going to slice my eyes open with his his abs. Well, his I mean, abs are terrifying. The man is ripped. Um, when you were when you were saying that he and Emily Browning are charismatic, though, that's where I kind of have to stop. I don't think like, I use the word charismatic. <laughs> I'm not saying this is up with like uh, Jack and Rose and Titanic. Well, but I was they're, thinking about they're that. Servicing that same dynamic. Ti- I thought about Titanic a lot just because you know that's a disaster movie that I've seen a lot, and, and there's a lot of beats in this that seem very clearly like you know you can even say it's an homage to Titanic, or it's just like what an action movie does. But Paul W. Sanderson got- would tell you that it is. I mean that he's thinking about Titanic. Okay, good. Then clearly, I'll I'll agree with him there. We don't. We don't even need commentary to know. No, but you got this romance that has to develop between this rich girl and this poor boy, and you know, obviously, you don't have a lot of options because no one wants to watch them actually get to know each other, and there's not really, there's no actual realistic way to get them together. But the way that this movie just takes like the barest minimum steps for this romance between them, like it basically has them ride a horse together for about five minutes, and then they are in love. They see each other from across the room a few times. Yeah. Also, Kit Harrington is pretty hot he is pretty hot no he's definitely the hottest fighting people and he's he's very he helps fix her horse and by fix i mean twist its neck and kill (laughs) it there's nothing hotter than he's a horse whisperer it's a it's a hot thing yeah i mean this romance basically doesn't exist and you've also got emily browning who starred in sucker punch she can do shit and she's just her character is such a placeholder she doesn't do anything and like you don't i mean you get like a token moment where she's trying to free herself from her own handcuffs but it's not even really interested in token moments and for the guy who's There's married no to me, like, 
There's well, no time for a guy for who's married to Mila Jovovich, you'd think he'd have more interest in giving his female heroine one thing, like one well, moment. He's tired something of interesting that. to do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't go in. Like, I'm not going to like, that's not my main problem with Pompeii. I don't think it has to be interested in like creating a balance between the genders. But there's just, there's a way that despite all the really, you know, fun and weird stuff with the villains and with the disaster, that it feels like it's kind of ticking boxes that kind of disappointed me. Like, I wanted it. Mm. I wanted everything to be as fun as Kiefer Sutherland's villain performance. And there's stuff like this where where it doesn't feel like Carrie Ann Moss, say, kind of like got to get in on the fun. Whereas Jared Harris kind of does seem to get on the fun because he just knows his character doesn't exist. It is is weird to have someone like Carrie Ann Moss in this movie. And I mean... She already, what else has she like, been in that, besides that, the Matrix? I guess she is that was in already Milo. the she's at where she's playing the mom in the disaster of movie. Of course, she's not. I mean, she's not that young. Not to, not she's that that's a problem. Not old either. She Look should be this. a mom, but she could kick more ass. Actually, I like. There's a scene where she's Grand talking to. 46. She's talking to Emily Browning's Cassia about like her, her troubles because Cassia went to Rome and apparently was like sexually harassed by Kiefer Sutherland. It sounds like, and then comes back and is dealing with like not being able to find a man that she truly loves. Everyone wants to just like hook her up with people for political and, and economical reasons. Which is how things went back then. Totally. And so she has enough going on in this movie. For me. <laughs> she is like Disney prince above a Disney princess with issues. I don't know. Frozen has changed that thing, man. Uh, can we talk about the amount of people of color who have to die to get these white people together? What the hell? How, like she has like this like lady in waiting <laughs> woman who is beautiful and interesting and she bites it and her little like the horse trader guy bites it. Like there's just the amount of the, the extent to which it is. This is a movie about the white people in the center of it is hilarious. Well, I mean, is that accurate though? I mean, no, well, no, but it's not accurate to have this tight friendship between the black gladiator and the white gladiator either. Um, they wouldn't even speak the same language. They would have no way to communicate with each okay. other. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> um, it's not the accuracy that I'm bugging it for. It's just that, like, again, saying there are so many, there are fun parts of this when the action gets going. I think it's a blast. I think Kiefer Sutherland, as we are saying, is hilarious. Kit Harrington can fight there are that fight scenes the one in the in the arena where they're supposed to be reenacting the Celtic raid or whatever uh, is really good but then there's just like these little like spots where I want the details to be filled in more even if they're going to be ludicrous details I think it would make it feel more thought through story-wise you mean story-wise or just in terms of like helping me be part of the world that we're in like well, make it a full experience give me, an, give, give me an example of that what, what details are you lacking there well, like, just give, I mean, like, when the lady and, I mean, do we care about spoilers for this? Well, well, I, I can't even imagine what a spoiler for this movie is. Know. Like, you know, there are, there are deaths, there are some deaths for some characters that are great and hilarious. And then there are some that just kind of happen because they have to. And I don't hmm. feel like all of them could have, like, a moment of being over the top in their own way. Or when you've got, like, like, there's one moment where they're, uh, Emily Browning and Kit Harrington are, like, in the streets of Pompeii. And they like pause in a doorway and they look out and there's like emotional music playing. And I can't, I couldn't even figure out what we were supposed to be looking at in that. Like it was supposed to be like a beat of breath and he was supposed to be seeing something, but like the volcano, the destruction. No, it was, yeah, it was like the destruction in the streets, but it it seemed like something was supposed to like jump out at me and nothing did. Like I couldn't even tell what (laughs) I was supposed to be reflecting on. Did you see this film in 3D? Yeah. 
How how was that experience for you? Well, it was fine. I mean, I know he shoots a native 3D, so that's good on him. Yeah, but I think I, I was just, I think the biggest problem is continues to be the projection of these uh-huh. 3D films. I, I think it would look pretty good, but I, I wish, I kept thinking to myself, I wish I was watching Pompeii in in 2D because it would have been brighter. Yeah. Um, they also this have film the, um, definitely suffers from it because it has so much black and like smoldering reds yeah, it's, and it, it just doesn't look very good when it's kind of gr- even grimier. Mm-hmm. And they had the um, <laughs> the masking on the sides of the screen on so it wasn't in widescreen for a while. Like they started projecting it and like half the credits were being projected out of the curtains on the oh side of the God. screen. It was hilarious. And Jordan Hoffman, our friend, had to get up and... Uh, Threw his hands up. <laughs> he had to get up and I tell can, somebody. I can picture that. Yeah. Um, so is Kit Harrington a viable lead for like the future? I mean, I personally <sighs> thought he was charming enough, kicked ass in a believable way. I mean, he that's always the hardest thing. Way. Yeah, that's the hardest thing with these movies. Like, put these guys in the ring, do they look like they're really fighting? And I actually thought this movie had some brutal moments. Um, yeah, that, the no, the that, training well, scene that I described. Although... And, it was amazing how many people get stabbed and how much you see blood on a sword, but there's no actual like blood coming from people. Right. Like the bloodlessness was, it got amusing. This is all. not 300 in that no. way. And but I'm like, glad, I, I, I'm I'm glad yeah. I don't want it to be, but when you show that many people getting stabbed and like basically no consequences, it's funny. It's kind of amusing because Paul W. Sanderson's films are so bloody. Like yeah. he has, he's a very violent person. Her <laughs> violent persona. Hey, I was about to say, geez. Uh, maybe, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Kit Harrington definitely is, con- is a convincing brawler. Like the amount of work he did to get those ads, I don't even want to know. I'm exhausted <laughs> just thinking about it. But is he a good actor? That's. What... I don't know. I like. I think. I don't. I mean, I don't think this is actually a fair place to judge that. Like, I don't think he's really handed anything that would make me say one way or another i mean like i said the romance is really thinly sketched out and then he just gets to be running around and rescuing people and well, like i think people laud steve reeves who was in all these peblum films that i was describing earlier um and he's probably not a great actor but he certainly can play the hero he seems heroic he has a physical presence in these movies that establish him as like a watchable guy i think that's happened to schwarzenegger um is is kit harrington functioning on that level like he can can whisk the girl and kiss her and then go off and ride a horse while fleeing you know, molten lava and, yeah. and then kick Keeper Sutherland's ass. In yeah, I mean, way. he can do all those things, but most movies aren't like that anymore. Like, that is not what make, but it's not, not what being a modern star is about. So unless we're going to get a bunch of Pompeys, then Kit Harrington is going to, like, he's going to have a limited career. We kind of have to see what else he can do besides ride a horse and run away. Pompeii movies. <laughs> There's nothing but Pompeii movies. Is, is, is the filmmaking interesting to you? Like, mm-hmm. I always find big scale action for me like Roland Emmerich movies don't really work for me I'm, I don't get into destruction but there's like enough wackadoo uh, scenarios playing out in Pompeii that I, w- I, I was kind of into it and then they bring it back to the characters I mean there's always, wack- there's always wackadoo scenarios playing out in Roland Emmerich movies like I know but they're just like, like so a limo away from a gorge like, maybe, what you want? maybe they lose track of the characters more than I think Pompeii does at least I mean Anderson wants to continue drifting back to Kit Harrington or Adewale's Atticus or you know put, he's putting real people in peril at a certain point uh, there's a scene where a mother like loses her daughter and Adewale swoops in and helps them <laughs> uh, which is ridiculous oh. but also it's still people centric even I think you're unfairly I mean Roland Emmerich movies all have that kind of stuff I think you're, we need to we need to do a Roland there's Emmerich something different then there's <laughs> well Roland Emmerich sucks 
uh, except for White God. House Down. I, I'll give you that. But I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride for 2012. I whatever. think Paul W. Sanderson outdid Roland Emmerich at his own game in Pompeii. Wow. All right, we are gonna do a re-review of 2012. <laughs> I'm gonna tell oh you my. all the reasons you're wrong. 2012 is awful. Like 2012 is what so... I'm thinking of here when I'm just like, what this movie. Oh, it, it's antagonizing. But if you put like if you put me on a couch on a Sunday afternoon and put both of these on cable, I would put 2012 on because hmm. there's more to it. There's more going on. I feel like I feel like every surprise in Pompeii has already been revealed to me. Like I know I know exactly what happened. Not much really does happen, and there's not like any spectacle that I really feel like eager to revisit, except maybe the, the the fight scenes in the arena. I'll, I'll ne- I'm not anxious to go back to Pompeii. I'll give you that. <laughs> well, it's a ruin, so you shouldn't put your uh, dick. In there. Ah. I've been told that if you, I've not visited the real Pompeii. Have you? Yeah, I went this. Oh, you have. Okay. Yeah. So, is it true that they have? It's like you're walking around the city and all the shops and all the people's homes, and then um, uh, in like glass cases, there are mummified pe- victims yeah, of the Pompeii just, explosion that just, just like on like, display. <clears throat> yeah, and like one spot, you can see the like base. Yeah, it's because they're they're not the bodies actually; they're the pockets from the like rubble. That were just preserved because basically, I mean, in real life, everyone in Pompeii died like instantly because there was just this. I mean, that's what they think. No one really knows. But they think that there was just this wave of heat that basically killed everyone because they all dropped. I mean, you know, they dropped where they stood. So there are these pockets underneath the ash where the bodies were just preserved and, you know, the bodies decayed. But they because it was so undisturbed for so long, you just get these little spaces. So they filled it in with plaster. So it's not actually a body. But it is kind of cool. I mean, it's like, and that's it's kind like of, dinosaur bones where. A lot of the dinosaur bones we see at museums aren't really dinosaur bones. Oh, yeah. They're just like the spaces. Ah. We're guessing. I know. And I mean, they nod to those plaster, uh, to those bodies. They do. That was cool. I liked that. Yeah. Yeah. The opening. And the ending. It reminded me of Aida. (laughs) (laughs) I've never seen Aida. Because that's where my brain goes. Anyway, Pompeii. um, (laughs) Pretty pretty good. I, I enjoyed it. Seeing it on the big screen, I would. I'd go 2D and just have a fun night. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't, yeah, go see it if you're interested. But I, I would also say that Amazon Prime is like ripe for the pickings of these peplum films of the 60s that are um, just as ridiculous, perhaps even more so because they get so, you know, the production values are so high. Um, hundreds of extras and Steve Reeves marching around in his skimpy toga or whatever. And they're, they're hilarious. And this is certainly a nod to those maybe less successful um because it has to be a Hollywood blockbuster, but the spirit is there. David, I don't think you have seen the American dub of The Wind Rises that uh, you are correct. Is, is coming out this week that people, the normal people, will be able to see. But, Although, um, uh, the, the movie opens in limited release this weekend and wider release next weekend on the 28th, but the li- for those whom, to whom the limited release matters, those who live in New York, perhaps, uh, BAM is actually going to be screening the Japanese 
audio cut with the subtitles uh, once every day, I believe. That's about like five people who listen to this. Everyone else is scattered across the country. (laughs) Hopefully we'll have access to the English dub. I imagine it'll it'll play in a decent amount of theaters. At least the biggest multiplexes in your area will be covering this American dub. And I I have seen the film. um, And I must say that having seen both, I saw the Japanese version at New York Film Festival back in, what, October? And the English version about two weeks ago. Um, I mean, there, it's I've always enjoyed the Frank Marshall produced Disney-ified English dub versions of the films. I mean, I think they're a real entry point for a lot of people who who want to get into these types of animated films and and expose them to expose Miyazaki to wider audiences. They're helpful, and I think this is really faithful to the version. I mean, there's an obvious. Um, disconnect when in early scenes Jiro, the main character, and we'll get into what this story is about in a second, um, but Jiro, Jiro, this innovative young mind, um, runs up to his teacher and he's like, I want to borrow this book. And he's like, oh, it's in English. You need a dictionary. And he's like, no, I, I have a dictionary. <laughs> and uh, I mean, this is, this conversation is taking place in English, uh, making it very confusing. Right. But- <laughs> I mean, you should explain that like for a lot of these dubs that Frank Marshall is has marshaled, you know, into <laughs> being, haha. Um, and they're for Miyazaki films that don't necessarily take place in, uh, they take place in fantasy worlds. They don't take place yes. in the world as we know it. Language is sort of an afterthought. Things typically have Japanese names, but that's really as far as the rub goes. This is Miyazaki's first film uh, to explicitly and entirely take place within uh a real-world scenario and real-world setting, and it explicitly takes place in Japan at a particular time of the 20th century. And it's sort of not just that it's set there, but that it's also about, in every which way, the character, sort of Japanese national identity at that time, and like how it's very rooted to a particular time, place, and people. And that's why, um, unlike previous Miyazaki films, I think. Uh, you know, even if the dub is strong, I mean, you have Werner Herzog coming in to play a German character right. and singing. Uh, I mean, how how could you go wrong? Uh, I still think that um, this is one of those examples where it's actually could be, I would imagine, because I only saw the subtitled one, uh, it would be less immersive to see something dubbed. Well, I think it's better to see it with the subtitle. I must say that as an English speecher, speaker, I don't speak Japanese. Um, obviously, I had an emotional connection to the film. In, in its correct language. And I have had very emotional reactions to other um, foreign films. I think we've all been there. Um, but I, I, do, I do like, I mean, I think there's a tender love and care go- went into this, this dub, writing this dub, and trying to um, not Americanize it in any way, but to allow the, the Japanese words to translate emotionally to our language. And I, I did find... An elegance in that in this in this English dub that the emotional value of what the words that they're speaking in Japanese have been translated successfully to English, which I find yeah, I interesting. Yeah, I I believe what you're saying. I'm sure I'm sure that um, you know they it, it, obviously they want to make some money with this, but I feel like Frank Marshall and and the Disney crew, even if this is being put up by Touchstone, uh, really do approach these Miyazaki adaptations with. Um, or, or translations, rather, with some love. They have enormous respect for the source material and its maker. Um, and, you know, fortunately, at the end of the day, given the magical world we live in, uh, on the Blu-ray, I would have to imagine <laughs> that we will have the opportunity to switch between the two audio tracks with the push of a button. I would, I would so, definitely recommend people try and see both, if that is an option, because... 
I mean, what, what's interesting is, and David, you are tapped into Japanese culture more than um, perhaps more most people. Um, so I wonder if you can engage with the material better. You know, I think if if it was trans, as it is with the subtitles, translated to English, some of the direct translations might read a little strange. There are scenes of, of romance and like asking for a father's permission for romance to take place. And some of these very specific Japanese moments uh, that are rooted in culture may not play when just transferred directly or translated directly into English. They might seem a little strange. Um, and you yeah. don't want that. You don't want to stumble with this movie because it's it's flowing so elegantly throughout the story. Um, and that's I think where the English may rub, help. Though, it's going to be less about language than it is about um, more what you were saying about culture and like cultural right. norms and, and interactions. I mean, I think that you know anyone who's probably seen any Japanese film uh, will understand that um, the, the simple... Uh, and yet endlessly complex idea that uh, you know, cultures are different. And there are certain things, if you watch old Japanese films, uh, just the way that emotions are expressed in most, whether you know it's Kurosawa or Ozu to pick things on opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with Toshiro Mifune um, or you know, anyone in an Ozu film, it's, it's very different, but it's very particular. And um, I think... Certain you have to certainly adjust to that. I mean, this is uh, sort of a useless thread because it, it all goes to horribly reductive generalizations. But um, I, I think one of the reasons overall that this film has met with a mixed response, although um, listeners familiar with the show are probably already aware that I think it is uh, an incredible masterpiece, um, are uh, is the fact that it it is very. Japanese. <laughs> it's. It's. Uh, I think that um, I, you know you you would have to qualify if I were to say it's his most Japanese film. You'd have to qualify that with so many footnotes um, that it would. It's not even worth saying. But I think that certainly some of the the twists and tone that the movie takes when it rather jarringly and abruptly uh, becomes a florid melodrama in the third act. Uh, I think there are certain tropes, certain ways that Jiro connects to his. Uh, his bride-to-be um, and how that story plays out that uh, y- y- it may be an easier transition for viewers who are more accustomed to that national cinema. I don't know. I, well, what you're saying, I think, may be a case for checking out the English dub um, because with direct translations, I don't think you have the massaging. It's It's interesting. So Jiro, the main character of this film, is very rigid in some ways. He's an emotional character, but he's very he has tunnel vision for what he loves to do, um, which is design and invent airplanes, which are the military wants his fighter airplanes. Um, and he creates art. He's an artist. And um, I know a lot of people have taken issue with you know the the moral ambiguity or the moral complications with what he loves to do and what he's creating and what they're used for and then his character is so focused on that but then this love story kind of enters and while he is in love with this woman Nahoko um he he's still you know she's suffering for, is that a spoiler can we talk about uh what she's suffering from um she's suffering she she has she's having a major problem in her life that requires her to be at a hospital. Um, but yet, yet Jiro asks her to come and live with him um, because their love is that strong. Like he wants to have, he wants to be a career man and an amazing husband um, or, or an amazing uh, man in her life. And um, 
that, that's a very difficult choice to ask her to be away from where she perhaps should be, the logical way of living life and living a more romantic life. And I think that moral ambiguity is kind of cut through and made palatable to to English viewers, American viewers, with this English dub. I find that very interesting. I'd love to go back. I haven't watched the Japanese version after seeing the English well, dub again, but I'd be interested. I think that plays a little smoother, and you can understand the emotional value of his decisions by by hearing it in English. I will say that um, the voice, the actor who plays Jiro in the Japanese version is not traditionally an actor at all. It's a guy named Hideaki Anno who created Neon Genesis Evangelion and had, who had a very public uh, crisis with his mental health related to that show and with whom there are some uh, flimsy but, but definitely uh, palatable parallels between uh, his experiences and what Jiro goes through uh, towards the second half of the movie. And his performance, it's very unorthodox for a voiceover performance, and it's, it's very flat, um, but I think it's perfect. I mean, I think it's one of the... One of the uh, I can't remember the last time that a foreign language voice performance in a language that I don't speak fluently had such uh, a visceral impact on me as Hideaki Anno's performance as Jiro does. It's very fragile. It's such a fragile performance. And I I give Joseph Gordon-Levitt credit because I think he, while not just copying it, not just imitating that performance, he still finds the fragility in the voice, his his own vocal performances. And I mean, they get good actors for this English dub. Gordon-Levitt plays Jiro. Emily Blunt plays Nahoko. um, Werner Herzog plays this German character who shows up halfway through the movie to bestow some wisdom. Um, they have William H. Macy, Mandy Patinkin, Stanley Tucci, Stanley Tucci playing Caproni, the, the Italian inventor that Giro visits in his dreams. Um, this was, I mean, Stanley Tucci was born to play this Italian. <laughs> he's, he's perfect. Um, and, and I, I think that that's the thing. They don't just try and emulate what Miyazaki did in the original Japanese version. They're trying to interpret these lines in an, in, a, in an English way. Uh, with the English dialogue, but um, be faithful to the original movie. Do you think that we should sort of, uh, as we should have done probably 12 minutes ago, uh, <laughs> just run through the very basics of what the movie is That's true. About, we haven't is, talked about it enough, perhaps, on the show to really uh, do justice. Um, no, we've alluded to how we will speak about it at some point, and uh, I think we may have eventually just confused that for us having talked about it. But um, it's a very loose, and Miyazaki would be the first person to admit this, a very loose uh, biopic um, of a guy named Jiro Horikoshi. Uh, the, what the film does is it actually merges Jiro Horikoshi's real life with a, another person altogether. Um, but if in this film, it's really just Jiro. And Jiro Horikoshi was a guy who uh, went on to create the Zero fighter plane that was used in the uh, kamikaze attacks that the Japanese became uh, sort of notorious for Towards the end of World War II, uh, they were you know, machines of war and uh, and most war at its most gruesome. And this is a rather risky, and there's certainly you know a, a few a few people who have been inclined to see the movie in a certain light. It's rubbed against them the wrong way. That as this movie sort of follows uh, Jiro's maturation, his uh, his artistic love for creating these things, and and his slow but complex realization that the the ends to which his 
inventions are going to be used, how he grapples with that, etc., how the film feels about him, how does the filmmaker, what does the filmmaker think about his characters, all sorts of those things, um, have, have engendered a lot of uh, animated discussion. Uh, but really it's just about this guy sort of grappling with, with the idea that just because, uh, just because the world you know, can't sustain beautiful things and because horror uh, is born from them doesn't mean that we should live without beautiful things necessarily. Um, it's, it's an, that's to reduce the movie to its most basic kernel. And it's one of the things Caproni tells Jiro uh, early in the film when they're having this sort of shared dream state when he's talking about the pyramids and all of the, the lives and sacrifices that were lost um, to create them. But uh, would you rather live in a world without pyramids? And I think that um, I think it's it's kind of a crude analogy that Jiro's life and his own feelings about himself, which I think are beautifully rendered, and I I am aghast at accusations that this movie does not confront the complicity of uh, you know Jiro in. in the Japanese campaign in World War II head on. That's what the movie is explicitly about. Right. <laughs> I don't understand that that argument, but um, uh, you know, it, it very sensitively explores that um, and through unexpected ways. I mean, that love story we talked about, where the movie seems to abruptly shift into melodrama, I think is actually the most articulate expression of Jiro's uh, dilemma, and it, I think it, everything is sort of beautifully resolved together in one very moving and wistful scene at the very end. Yeah, I, I, a, a tearjerker, for sure. But I, not cheap. It's not. I mean, even in the English version, I don't think anything drifts into melodrama. Um, I was surprised that even in the English version, even Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Emily Blunt seem to have this kind of chemistry that is very. It's it's transcendent of this medium. I don't. You know, I certainly didn't get anything out of Frozen uh, the same way I get out of Burn. Uh, yeah, Burn. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm just not feeling these characters living and breathing uh, most of the time in animated films. And here, I'm like, I'm watching real people, and we can still have the artistry of animation, the imagination that Miyazaki brings to a film, to to his fantasy films. Um, just seeing Jiro's mind unfold and have to be complicated by these these moral challenges. Um, it's expressed so wonderfully in, in the animation. Um, and also, I, I'm a huge fan of um, Joe Hisashi, I believe. is Yeah, yeah Hisashi. the music in this is just astounding. The, the music's amazing. I mean, obviously, the Eastern influences that have been in many of, of Joe's fantasy scores for Miyazaki's film, but also this kind of Italian element and just um, what it's like to take off. I found, it's like the aviator, almost, just like a kind of the grand um, moment of, of liftoff from a plane. I think it's all captured in, in both animation and, and music. Uh, David, you ended up getting quoted on the poster for the English version of The Wind Rises, perhaps the greatest animated film ever made. Something like that. I think it's like, perhaps, I, I, that would be no, that's the not quote. nearly pretentious <laughs> enough. Perhaps the greatest. Uh, not nearly pretentious enough. I had to go a step beyond, and I think I, it's worded, uh, perhaps the greatest animated film the cinema has ever seen. Oh, boy. Is the quote. Um, but uh, I genuinely believe that to be true. And the perhaps goes a long way, of course. I mean, you could say perhaps the greatest animated film the cinema has ever seen for pretty – you could say that for Turbo, and it would be just as true. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps is a very powerful word. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, for me, it's, it's a matter of I, – I know from my own taste that my favorite animated film, whichever it is, was made by Miyazaki. Right. There's no, there's no other contenders for that throne. And this, uh, I believed it then, and I – 
think I still believe it now, is my favorite Miyazaki film. So it's really not... Uh, the, it's the, just math, yeah. It's not very hard <laughs> <laughs> to figure out. So What was this week's lightning round question? Um, oh my god. Uh, yes, Dave wrote this like very complex riddle that sounded like it was out of Alice in Wonderland. Um, and I'm going to try and read it now, and everyone seemed to understand it. Uh, so it is, uh, in honor of Pompeii, what disaster movie didn't make you wish everyone who made it was extinct? Uh, it's pretty complicated. <laughs> I, I, had to, I had to really wrap my mind around that. But um, yes, Katie, who, who did you go with? Um, there are actually a lot of good answers that I enjoyed, but I, I have to go with Patrick Wren, who threw me back to one of my favorite press screening experiences of all time. Remember me too soon. Never forget. Wait, is that the one where, um, that's the one where Robert Pattinson oh, dies on 9-11. Oh. oh God, that movie. I think by the time I'd seen it, I kind of had heard what it was, but then I kind of didn't believe it because it seemed so absurd. And then, oh my God, it happens. And it's amazing. Maybe remember me helped us get over 9-11. <laughs> because I get like when finally, Robert Pattinson when it's killing Robert Pattinson we're somehow can, like comfortable with it finally be like okay this is now in the past I mean there was a fire <laughs> drill in my uh the high-rise building where I work and everyone took it very uh cavalierly so oh I think, my god that is this is some dark humor um <laughs> David uh I'm going to pick uh Andreas Walther at underscore Andreas Walther who picked it says that's easy melancholia because it uses the end of the world to tell us something about the people in it. Well put, and I think that's true. I've been going on a big Lars von Trier binge recently uh, with, with Nymphomaniac and uh, The Breaking the World. I hope you've been here, bouncing yeah. back and forth between comedy and drama, at least. <laughs> I think they're all comedies ah. in their own hmm. way. Yeah, Breaking uh, the Waves. Hysterical. <laughs> Breaking the Waves. Funniest movie of the, the year. Dark, maybe less so. I want to see Adam uh, Sandler's remake of Breaking <laughs> the Waves. <laughs> Nymphomaniac is definitely a comedy. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm really – I've always loved Lars von Trier, and I think my love for him and his work is only deepening as he uh, goes full troll. And he's one of those filmmakers who I think actually his – the breadth of his artistic inquiry widens the more he is more stridently mocking his audience <laughs> or, or having fun at our expense at least. But uh, Melancholia is such a great movie, and uh, I was happy to have the excuse to revisit it again the other day, and I agree with uh, Andreas's assessment. Ashes, what's your what's your pick? Yes, I'm going to pick um, at Jay Heimbrock from Jeff Heimbrock, who said the impossible. I was so moved and had never cried so much at a film. I came home and donated forty dollars to the Red Cross. Still do. Uh, I don't know if still do means he's still crying or he still cries every <laughs> time he sees the impossible or he's still donating $40 Donate. to the Red Cross. Every it's a very yeah, it's a very long process. Um, but I, you know, I. I, I toyed with the idea of saying the impossible for my own answer uh, earlier this too, week. You were too afraid of David's Yeah, David, David was giving me a hard time. Um, but I, I love, I, I think that movie is great. We saw it at Toronto, I guess yeah, now did. two years ago. Oh my um, God, yeah. And it, it wrecked me too. I mean, it's yeah. a very earnest movie uh, and there's spectacle to it, but frighteningly so. so. Hmm. I want to throw in one extra answer just because I'm amused by it from the best Captain K who says, Armageddon, obviously, because Bruce Willis's selflessness made me need to be carried out of the theater when I was six. 
And I'm so like moved by the like idea of like a little six-year-old who's just like, he sacrificed himself for everybody. Aww. So that sounds like a great movie-going experience. And uh, I also like Armageddon. Um, I guess that's the end of our show. Yeah, that does it for uh, this week's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week. Kit Harrington free, sadly. But we'll Oh, hope. I was hoping he'd actually be on the show. Well, actually. after I called him uncharismatic, I feel like that's not going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. Um, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, rogue agent of the internet. I am writing all over the place, and I'm trying to put it all on mattpatches.com. And I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And I think that's it. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I am a man about town <laughs> right now. You can, uh, I am writing for The Guardian. I did one article that's up this week about Jim Jarmusch, and maybe I'll do some other stuff. Is it Jarmusch? Is it Jar- Jarmusch? 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 We'll have to get, we'll have to... He wasn't like, hi, I'm Jim Jarmusch. Jarmusch. You may remember me from such films. <laughs> <laughs> um... But uh, I can't pronounce my own last name as I learned when I was in Germany, so who the fuck cares? Uh, but you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And the Oscars are coming up, so God, there's going to be so much tweeting about the Oscars. It's going to be great. Don't unfollow me. It'll be over soon, I promise. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I dream again.